the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. President Trump at his task force briefing last evening had uh, this to say about uh, the reopening and how the interplay between the president and the governors will go. I will be speaking to all 50 governors very shortly. I will then be authorizing each individual governor of each individual state to implement a reopening and a very powerful reopening plan of their state at a time and in a manner as most appropriate. The day will be very close because certain states, as you know, are in much different condition and in a much different place than other states. It's going to be very, very close, maybe even before the date of May 1st. That's getting closer to being at least directionally correct. Uh, He doesn't need to authorize anybody to do anything at the state level. Now, if we disagree with it, we're not going to let them open. We're not going to let them open. If some governor said, you know, has a lot of problems, a lot of cases, a lot of death, and they want to open early, we're not going to let it happen. So we're there to watch. We're there to help. But we're also there to be critics. Is he changing his tune? Not not that much. Um, he's directionally right about the governors running their own show, but he t- talks about authorizing them or preventing them. He, it's real simple. Have Mike Pence put it on a card and laminate it. Guidelines in, guidelines out. That's it. it it's, it's not about treating every state the same. It, it's about governors will be the managers and localities, and in this case employers, will be the implementers. He, had a, he is not authorizing any governor to do anything any more than he interceded to come over the top of Gretchen Whitmer's tyrannical order over the weekend because he can't. It's beyond his constitutional authority. So he should stop it. Guidelines in, guidelines out. Federal government is a backstop. States implement, uh, states manage, I should say, and localities implement. The same approach to the response should be applied to the reopening. For more on these plans that are now being promulgated from individual governors, CDC and FEMA has a plan. So does the Heritage Foundation. We're pleased to be joined by Rob Louie, Vice President of Communications and Executive Director of the Daily Signal, as well as the Heritage Foundation's National Coronavirus Recovery Commission spokesman. Rob, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Yeah, here's my thing with uh, the phases and the steps we're we're supposed to be impressed with like CDC FEMA plan that has phases and Governor Newsom has steps and, and not attach any meaning to the other words or ask uncomfortable questions about feasibility uh, with things like contact tracing. 
But isn't it the case that ultimately best practices, here's an idea of our best practices, and it's going to be up to governors and mayors and employers to figure out what works best at their level for them? You're absolutely right about that. We have something in this, this country called federalism where uh, we, we do allow the state uh, chief executives, the governors, uh, particularly even at a lower level, mayors, county commissioners, uh, you name it. Uh, that's where some of the best decisions are made. That's the approach conservatives have traditionally taken from everything from education to spending. So I think it would be applicable uh, for a public health crisis uh, in the same way. You want those decisions to be made at the, at the local level or at the state level, uh, not by uh, the president of the United States. And so the president, as you indicated, can offer recommendations and guidelines. He can put out uh, information from FEMA or the CDC or take recommendations from our own National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. But ultimately, the decision is going to have to be made by the, those localities. And that's why our commission has decided to take a a different approach, an approach that looks at recommendations for the federal level, for the state level, for localities, and for civil society, because we feel that all four of those groups play a critical role in determining when we can get America back to work again. Uh, What about uh, talking about civil society, and we just mentioned Gretchen Whitmer, what about uh, recommendations in terms of restoring uh, the full complement of your, your uh, constituents' individual rights? There's a lot. There's a protest today in Michigan, of course, uh, of Gretchen Whitmer's order. Um, but there are concerns around the country with some of the measures that have been taken at the state and local level and perhaps some advice and counsel to governors and local officials about walking some of those measures back. Well, that's true. Each state has adopted a slightly different approach. I mean, in Florida, for instance, you can still go golfing. In in other states, you know, that's on the question. So I agree that it's somewhat confusing. Uh, Why Americans say, why can there be hundreds of people in a grocery store crammed in together getting food, but they can't worship in a church, church together, you know, maybe where you are practicing social distancing even. So I think that Michigan is uh, one of those examples where they've taken some of the more draconian steps. And, uh, and, you know, Americans are peacefully assembling uh, to to protest those. Uh, We've even heard the Attorney General, William Barr, come out and, and speak about this. So I do think that uh, we need to respect the the civil liberties of individuals. I think where in Kentucky, a mayor tried to step in, uh, he was rebuked for his attempts to stop a church service. So, yes, uh, this is one of the reasons why we have a constitution. But uh, at the same time, uh, you know, that constitution gives governors uh, a lot of authority in times of a pandemic. So it's finding that right balance. And I think in some cases, states have probably exerted a little bit too much and we need to scale it back. With respect to the five phases uh, that you have outlined for the federal level, uh, five being uh, reduced future risks of pandemics, you talk about investing in national states stockpiles of healthcare resources, reforming supply chains. This, uh, of course, is a, a hot topic uh, with uh, so many supply chains for American companies and uh, products that Americans need, particularly in crisis, as we've seen located uh, in China, at least in part. I wonder if uh, there are specific proposals of what to do to encourage U.S. companies who not, are not already onshoring or moving their supply chains, at least out of China to other parts of Southeast Asia, what incentives there are to do things like that, maybe some carrot and some stick, particularly as so many companies, uh, like, for example, the airlines at present, are receiving so much in federal support to stay operational. Well, there are some measures in the U.S. Congress uh, to to do that. There are several proposals, and I think this is an area of the supply chain that will be a hot topic 
uh, when Congress returns. Uh, there, there are members who want to make sure that we don't find ourselves in a situation like this again. I think it's important to take a close look. Obviously, we want to maintain uh, free trade uh, with countries, but at the same time, we want to be in a position where we can protect our own citizens and uh, not be at the mercy of China or some other regime that uh, you know, may not have the best interests of the United States in mind. And so I think that's why it's so critically important to take a, a close look at this issue. Uh, we need to have the personal protective equipment, the, fa- the face masks, the gloves. We need to have the drugs, frankly, to, to treat the virus. And, uh, and when we find ourselves in a situation where we're coming up short and we're not able to get back to work because we don't necessarily have all of the things that we need, uh, then yes, I think that that's going to have not only an economic effect, but it's going to have an impact on public health as well. And so uh, I'm glad you brought it up. I think that that's uh, one of the areas where uh, there needs to be future planning done. And that's why it has to be a combination of both the short term, which President Trump is so focused on. I mean, he's talking about dates in the next couple of weeks and also a long term view of how we prevent the United States from finding itself in a situation like this in the future. And, and, and some of the measures, it seems to me, from a conservative perspective, I'm not talking necessarily about tariffs. I'm not talking about um, government interventions. How about government de-intervention? So for companies, because mainly if you're talking about supply chains in foreign countries, you're talking mainly about bigger companies. Um, How about no more access to the Export-Import Bank to the extent that that should exist at all? How about uh, eliminating subsidies? There's no constitutional right to uh, for a business to enjoy subsidies and other tax benefits from the federal government because they're in a particular sector the government wants to support or they're a particular business the government wants to support. Maybe reducing the rent-seeking benefits to those bigger companies will encourage them to uh, move away from China. Well, those are all proposals that I think are are worthwhile to take a look at. Uh, I mean, uh, you're probably aware the Heritage Foundation has never been a fan of uh, the Export-Import Bank and and the government picking winners and losers. And so I think when we can eliminate some of those, uh, it's all for the better of the American people. Uh, Government has its hand in in far too many things already. And so this is one of the areas where I think we can take a close look. Uh, Of course, at the same time, I find ourselves in a situation where uh, during a crisis, uh, it seems that everyone wants to expand the power and role of government. So uh, as members of Congress talk about the next phase of money that they're going to be pumping into the economy, I think it's important for uh, for everyone uh, to be careful about it, uh, expanding just how much uh, how much the government's tentacles enter into the private sector, because we, we don't necessarily want to find ourselves in a situation where we come to regret it later. He is Rob Bluey. He's the VP of Communications and Executive Editor at The Daily Signal and uh, the Heritage Foundation National Coronavirus Recovery Commission's spokesman. Rob, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Former President Barack Obama making the uh, courageous step of endorsing Joe Biden when there were no other options left yesterday. And that's why I'm so proud to endorse Joe Biden for President of the United States. 
Choosing Joe to be my vice president was one of the best decisions I ever made, and he became a close friend. And I believe Joe has all the qualities we need in a president right now. This uh, endorsement will be underreported, but it is interesting, particularly as uh, Georgia becomes an increasingly competitive state. Vernon Jones, who is a uh, Democrat state representative from DeKalb County, is uh, endorsing Trump. He's also an African-American gentleman. Uh, He views Trump as a transformative figure who's helped African-American voters, veterans and farmers with his policy, you know, his constituents. He writes uh, or he said, uh, did uh, Representative Jones, very simple to me, President Trump's handling of the economy, his support for historically black colleges and his criminal justice, criminal justice initiatives drew me to endorse his campaign. This is not about switching parties. There are a lot of African-Americans who clearly see and appreciate he's doing something that's never been done before. When you look at the unemployment rates among black Americans before the pandemic, they were at historic lows. That's just a fact. Hmm. Joe Obama said something else, too. This was interesting right at the end here, talking about uh, the Joe Biden candidacy as uh, leading us into a great awakening. That phrase is is important. Um, Listen, right now, we need Americans of goodwill to unite in a great awakening against a politics that too often has been characterized by corruption, carelessness, self-dealing, disinformation, ignorance, and just plain meanness. Great awakening. That is a phrase that means something in America. It's a religious revival. There have been a handful over the last 200 years. And so what he's subtly calling for is... uh, politics as religion and uh, returning to the politics of the left or fully embracing the 2020 version of the politics of the left. This is a religious movement, a movement of religious consequence, existential. Right. As Chesterton observed, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. And the left believes in politics and government. That is their God. And Barack Obama understands it, and thus the appeal. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Andrew Clavin, podcaster, famed Hollywood screenwriter as well. Another Kingdom in season, uh, it's it's uh, third and final season. You want to check that out. Screenwriter for the movie Gosnell as well. Gosnell, The Trial of America's Biggest Serial Killer. Andrew Clavin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's great to be here. I thought when he was calling for a great awakening, he meant Joe Biden. He wanted to get up. Don't take the easy ones. Do not take the easy ones. You're better than that. I couldn't help myself. It's a moment of weakness. Uh, What about uh, that uh, stunning endorsement of Barack Obama by Joe Biden? (laughs) It's like every he has no choice. Finally, the potted plant with a sign that said "Vote for me" on it fell over. So that was the only guy left was Joe Biden. I mean, it, it it really was embarrassing. And it was doubly embarrassing the way the press covered it, as if uh, this was a wonderful, you know, a, a moment of support. Yeah, it was. It was really. It's really sad. I mean, it, it is. And I, I can't. I, I'm. I'm shocked that they are, they're actually going to go through with this. It really does look like they're going to go through with putting up this guy, who at this point I, I don't even know how he's going to survive. I, I suppose if he survives a debate, the press will back it as some major, you know, triumph. Uh, but the guy is really out of it and it's not, you know, I'm not, it's not just being mean. He's always been a dope. I mean, he's never been an intelligent uh, guy, but he was obviously a competent behind the scenes politician. He's always been a very competent, you know, uh, backroom dealer and and whisperer. Uh, But how can he do that if he can't even talk anymore? 
There's a, something else that Obama said in that endorsement video. He talked about how Joe Biden will surround himself with scientists and experts, you know, people that uh, believe in government and know how to operate it. And I know he'll surround himself with good people, experts, scientists, military officials who actually know how to run the government and care about doing a good job running the government and know how to work with our allies and who will always put the American people's interests above their own. Uh, this is, is which is really interesting because this is basically saying, you know, you were wrong to not trust the technocracy in 2016 when you rejected the experts who hadn't been particularly expert in managing your life for you. And we're going to bring them back. And uh, and and, it, and it's a real I think it's actually a fairly big risk considering how much we know about how wrong so many of the experts have been across sector from uh, epidemiological modeling to uh, intelligence on uh, uh, China's operations? Well, I, that's a, tr- a tremendously good point. I mean, because this has been the drumbeat of the left and the drumbeat of the media that, you know, uh, the bureaucracy and the administrative state has been saving us from our, the elected official, Donald Trump, uh, and that we really have to get rid of this Constitution stuff and trust to the experts. They have done a tremendously bad job, and Trump has been right about almost everything. This is the thing that really gets me, is that this virus has exposed the fact that Trump was right about China. He was right to go after China. And he was attacked from both the left for being xenophobic and from the right for hurting their stock portfolios by starting a trade war with China. He was right about borders. I mean, even people like me were kind of high-minded about borders, saying, well, we have this wonderful creed and it will transform people into Americans. But no, you know, you can only do that with a certain number of people over certain periods of time. You can't just have people swarming into the country and uh, assimilate, and that doesn't work. So he was right about that. It's dangerous to have open borders. And he was really right about globalization. He was right that when even people on the right were saying how wonderful this is. This is the magic of capitalism. It's all going to be free market across the world. They forgot one important thing, which is that countries are not just economic entities. They're also moral entities. There's a difference between China and America. There's a moral difference between China and America. And they may have a good economy or a bad economy, but that government is a bad, oppressive, nasty government. And when the New York Times is sitting around wishing we could be China for a day so we could solve all the problems by putting experts in charge, they're essentially voicing that Obama mentality who Obama himself once said, I wish I could lock myself away with the experts and solve the problems. Well, we've got this democracy and, you know, it's just holding me up. Well, you know, (laughs) I mean, Trump was right. He was right about all these things and both on the left and the right, we attacked him for it. And so now it's time to sort of rethink that. He is Andrew Clavin. He is a famed Hollywood screenwriter, podcaster, Another Kingdom, and it's uh, third and final season. Uh, Complete to check that out. Screenwriter for the movie Gosnell, The Trial of America's Biggest Serial Killer. Might as well check that out, too, while you're at home waiting for the economy to reopen. Andrew Clavin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great talking to you. Take care. I can feel a thing from my head down to my toes.
Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, interesting uh, additional column that RealClearPolitics.com has added to both its country by country statistics on uh, COVID as well as its state by state statistics. Seasonal flu deaths and good for them for doing it. Give us some proportionality, uh, another opportunity to educate people. So in the United States, round numbers as we talk today, 25,000 deaths by Uh, as a result of COVID-19 infection. Seasonal flu deaths, this according to the CDC and WHO for the last year reporting, 2017, 40,000. And remember, uh, in this country, and really by extension world over, we have a vaccine for the flu virus, for influenza A and B, that's about 50% effective. So are we going to shut the economy down and uh, are we going to reopen the economy in May just to uh, shut it back down when uh, the American public gets wind of how many people die every year from influenza A and B? And it also speaks to the conversation I just had with uh, Andrew Clavin about the technocracy. We're supposed to rely on the experts and uh, the epidemiologists and particularly the modelers. And frankly, they've been elevated by the Trump task force, including the president himself reiterating the predictions that were made uh, per the Imperial College London modeling and Neil Ferguson, as well as uh, both uh, Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci, reiterating the predictions made and revised down, like the Imperial College London study, dramatically uh, from the uh, University of Washington Institute, the Chris Murray study that has been given so much credence and has been so wildly wrong. In addition to all of the other projections about uh, material needs, for example, right? Uh, President Trump has talked about it over the last couple of days. Uh, Cuomo saying you need a 30 to 30 to 40,000 ventilators in New York state. Uh, turns out they're capping out right now at less than 6,000. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Andrea Whitberg. She is a uh, uh, deputy editor of the American Thinker, AmericanThinker.com. And uh, Andrea has written a piece about uh, the dire projections, and maybe there's a reason they're wrong, or have been wrong. Andrea, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. So, um, you know, everybody is uh, who wants to see uh, and wants to do the comparison is seeing what was projected versus what has come to pass. And um, some are just uh, chalking it up to good intentions but bad assumptions. Um, you suggest uh, maybe something else is afoot? But was it Lord Acton said power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And the democratic yearning is always for more power. And it's always phrased under the best of intentions. We know what's best for you. And this is the opportunity to prove to constituents that they do indeed know what's best for them. And they're going to control every single movement. And people get used to being controlled. You do it long enough, that becomes the normal, especially young people. Uh, and I, I have children of my own, and I've noticed that this is not a rebellious generation. They all march in lockstep with whatever the authorities tell them. If the teachers tell them climate change, yes, climate change. If the teachers tell them no guns, yes, no guns. There's no rebellion in the young people nowadays for all that they show up at protests. They're just protesting along with the authorities. Uh, and it seems to me, and this is you know purely anecdotal, so I'm not going to make grand predictions about uh, percentages, 
But there but there are some people that uh, whose uh, dislike of President Trump is so intense. And it was frankly, it was documented by Amy Horowitz, the documentarian who uh, did a little bit of man on the street uh, interviewing of, of residents of East Village in New York. The the uh, disgust, the hatred of Trump is so intense that they're actually rooting for him to fail in helping to combat the spread of the virus. Absolutely. And one of the things that's very interesting Yesterday, Bill de Blasio, or was it day before, uh, suddenly announced that there were 4,000 new coronavirus deaths in New York City. Right? None of them had been tested, but the assumption is because they had coughs or something like that. And one of the things I've noticed is that totalitarian governments, such as China or Iran, are desperately bringing down the numbers because since they are complete tyrants in total control, every death will be their fault. So it's in their interest to lie about the number of deaths. And in China's case, it's in its interest because China unleashed this virus on the world. So it's backpedaling frantically. But in Democrat jurisdictions, there are a lot of reasons to want to increase the death count. Uh, Money, the more deaths you have, the more federal aid you get. And one of the reasons, as you've just pointed out, is to show that Trump is a complete failure. And it really ought to be because we have a federal system that the governors and the mayors have failed to protect their citizens. But right now, many American cities have a vested interest in inflating the number of deaths so that they can point to Trump and say, this is our killer president. I, I want to pick up on the governors and the mayors uh, when we come back. More with Andrea Weiberg, deputy editor of the American Thinker, AmericanThinker.com. Right after this. Yes, times like these this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. President Trump at uh, Tuesday night's uh, solo performance at the task force briefing in the press had this to say about uh, president vis-a-vis the governors again we have one country but we have lots of different pieces it's a puzzle we have beautiful pieces beautiful states with capable governors they know when it's time to open and we don't want to put pressure on anybody i'm not going to put any pressure on any governor to open some of those pieces are more beautiful than others uh pleased to be joined again uh, uh holding her over andrea weiberg deputy editor of the american thinker americanthinker.com and uh, Andrea, uh, today we see uh, uh, expected 15,000 cars to descend on Lansing, Michigan, to protest Gretchen Whitmer, the governor there, one of the beautiful pieces, uh, for her rather draconian order uh, banning all sorts of uh, goods from being sold that would allow people to grow their own food in addition to any uh, freedom to uh, freely associate with your neighbors and uh, just a, a, an order that signed that was signed over this past weekend is being uh, has generated this sort of protest in 72 hours. Yeah, it's very funny how the local media is, is covering it. I have in front of me the first paragraph in WLNS dot com. Apparently a local Lansing station is a conservative right wing group plans to protest. <laughs> so they are trying to lock people in a box. But yeah, I, the thing is that. The, Politicians have locked themselves into a box because they've essentially promised people that no one will die on their watch, which makes it very difficult to change the course they've set out for themselves. 
anything they do now where someone dies, they've become the same monster Trump is. But by contrast, it seems to me that the Democrats and the media, and as Glenn Reynolds always says, but I repeat myself because they're the same thing, have actually freed Trump because Trump initially was playing by the book and listening to all the hysteria and willing to lock things down and doing all this and that. And what Trump has discovered is that in this, as in everything else, no matter what he's done, he's the bad guy. And if you're going to be damned if you do and damned if you don't, you may as well do. And I think we're seeing that kind of freedom when yesterday he announced that he was freezing all funds for the World Health Organization for 60 to 90 days while he reviews how it's been a shill for China and how it enabled China to hide the virus and allow it to spread around the world. So I think the the Democrat governors like Whitmer have very little room for maneuver, whereas Trump now has a wide field within within which to act. That's going to be very helpful for him. Well, and and there's other uh, uh, measures that have been taken by state and local officials around the country that are being... Mm -hmm. Uh, treated uh, with uh, disdain by residents, Republican and Democrat alike, from the Checkpoint Charlies in particular states that don't necessarily make a lot of sense in terms of uh, distinguishing between who might be coming from a hotspot and who isn't based on your the license plate, um, mm-hmm. to, uh, uh, to, to the fines that were issued to people in their cars with their windows rolled up doing a parking lot church service over Easter Sunday, uh, where they uh, uh, were, were fined by the local authorities or there was an effort in Louisville, Kentucky to shut down those services altogether. And now the Department of Justice is getting involved with, on behalf of congregants. Uh, you've had um, federal district court judges rebuke local mayors. Um, so there's 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 uh, th- th- these checkpoint Charlie's and uh, the Whitmer uh, shelter in place are really just uh, don't come outside orders or you'll be fined. In addition to fining people a thousand bucks if they're not wearing a mask in places like Laredo, Texas, you know, that, that is not, that does not know partisan strife because I think generally speaking, there's a majority of Americans who believe in their individual rights and don't believe they should be so easily suspended. I agree. And what it also shows is a profound disrespect for the American people. And, and, and this is partly driven by our 24 hour media, which is if someone somewhere does something stupid, it becomes national news as it, and is imputed to all Americans. Well, you can't trust them. But one of the things I've noticed, I'm not in a total lockdown jurisdiction, and so I can go shopping at Walmart, and you can go through the whole store. And Walmart, as many companies have, Walmart's put into place ways to protect its employees and customers because the free market is very responsive. And it was very clear that as people have realized that it's a very contagious disease, but life goes on, from week to week, more and more people in the store are wearing masks voluntarily because they want to be able to get out and about and protect themselves and their friends and neighbors. So all of this draconian, totalitarian shutting down of everything, it's not just a political instinct to protect the politician, but it's also saying you, the people, are too stupid to be trusted to protect yourself. And we're also seeing, thank goodness, the effect of Trump's judicial appointments. For example, Mayor Fisher in Louisville, Kentucky, got slapped back by a federal district court judge, right. a Trump appointee, saying, no, 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 no. Um, if, if, if beer's essential, believe me, religious worship under the First Amendment is also essential. And it was a great decision. I, I called it a luminous decision. It was so beautifully written, but it was also completely in sync with our 
our rights as American citizens. And there is going to be a lot of pushback. I think what's happening in Lansing, Michigan today, there was a, a protest in, in, uh, in, in, in North Carolina, which the police shut down, even though people were keeping social distancing. It was the most widespread po protest ever with very few people. But the, the, the police forces are afraid. Well, they don't want to lose their job. And there's also the, the pernicious effect that's sort of uh, indirect until you're you're ratted up, upon. But these snitch lines that have been set up in places like Kentucky, places like Cook County, Riverside, California, encouraging uh, citizens to become sentinels of the state with respect to their neighbors and and uh, you know, be talking about uh, ratting people out for fines or police action for not keeping six feet apart and, and things like that. You're right about the trust factor and also the culture of mistrusted breeds of government. And it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out when those same politicians come back to those same constituents and ask for more money because of the revenue shortfalls from the shutdown. That's right. And people that's the other thing is what's essential, because initially everybody thinks food's essential, water is essential, electricity is essential. But to the person who's running a shoe repair store, paying his rent and feeding his own family is essential. For the government, and especially we see that with Whitmer, with you can buy lottery tickets but not flower seeds. If right. you're not from Michigan, you can go to your cabin in the in the in the woods, but you can't if you are from Michigan. Who the heck is she to make these huge decisions with huge implications about people's lives? It's I, yeah. really shocking. I think uh, fifteen thousand people in Lansing are going to ask that same question today. Andrea Weiberg, deputy editor of the American Thinker, AmericanThinker.com. Andrea, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and uh, here we go again. Researchers at Harvard, you know this rarely ends well. Researchers at Harvard published a uh, new report analyzing the transmission dynamics of COVID-19 and recommending that social distancing protocols be extended until 2022 to stop seasonal resurgences of the COVID-19 virus. I mean, seriously, the abstract of the study, we projected the recurrent wintertime outbreaks of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, will probably occur after the initial most severe pandemic wave. Absent other interventions, a key metric for the success of social distancing is whether critical care capacities are exceeded. To avoid this, prolonged or intermittent social distancing may be necessary into 2022. Well, uh, what form that takes? I mean, fine. You know, again, here we go. Be rational. Be sensible. Work this out at the local level in your community with your local officials. Maybe, maybe with your state officials. But ultimately, so much of this, as I continue to beat the drum, as I did with Rob Bluey earlier in the hour, is going to be employer and employee, interpersonal, solving problems like private Americans in a free society. <laughs> Certainly not being governed by the faculty at Harvard. 2022 social distancing protocols. So what? You're not going to have uh, an audience for a show or sporting event for the next two years? You think that's feasible? 
even if it were feasible, is it sensible? Do you really want to be in sort of East German protocols for two two years? It's unreasonable. It's unreasonable. Some lives versus other lives. Trade-offs in this life. We trade freedom for security and security for freedom all the time. It's a balancing act. Let's just be sensible here and abide uh, William F. Buckley's uh, admonition that he, as I played, I think, last week. Gosh, it keeps coming back up. Rather be governed by the first 2,000 people out of the Boston Telephone Book than the 2,000 members of the Harvard faculty. Me too. Uh, Speaking of uh, which, uh, college campuses, politically correct, ruling elite, no safe spaces. This is the number one political documentary of 2019. I actually saw it in the theater back way back when, when theaters were something, when theaters existed back in 2019. It's now available to watch at home for a limited time. No safe spaces dot com. You know it. It's the film that Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla put together that details how America has become uh, in certain quarters, social media platforms, academia, Hollywood, become hostile to free minds offering uh, thoughts in a free manner, free minds, free speech. A uh, range of, uh, uh, of thought leaders included in, uh, across the political spectrum in the film in vain uh, on behalf of free speech. So use this opportunity, this downtime, for as long as it lasts with the eye towards a reopening, hopefully in the near future in your state. And check out No Safe Spaces for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter, um, he's been on the case. Uh, he's been a fiend on Twitter, keeping track of uh, the uh, press coverage on things like the supply of uh, necessary uh, devices and personal protective equipment, as well as uh, the need for uh, medical professionals around the country, in addition to uh, the models that modeled fatality rates, the way that uh, COVID deaths are being counted. And um, he uh, tweets, New York Times continues to slide further into fiction with uh, this gem, the U.S. needs, quote unquote, foreign doctors because hospitals are scrambling to address a shortage of medical professionals and keep a full supply of healthcare workers. This is New York Times story this week. Needs foreign doctors. Uh, he tweets along with that headlines from East Texas, East Texas hospitals, furlough workers amid COVID-19 pandemic. How about in uh, New York? Glen Falls Hospital furloughs 337 workers. That's New York State. Trinity Health furloughs employees, cuts executive pay. That's in Montana. Um, And uh, it just goes on from there. I mean, is there perhaps maybe, maybe uh, a hospital here or there 
a particular locale that needs uh, some additional support. Sure, that's possible. Uh, that's why uh, regulations were relaxed, like, for example, when Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker uh, issued an executive order allowing MDs from other states to come into Massachusetts and practice medicine in his state so as to help treat patients in Massachusetts. That's another way to do it, rather than this talk about a need to uh, import foreign doctors. Is that really a need? I don't know. Yeah, but the, the issue is, is why do you need to make it something it's not? Why can't you just make it what it is? So that so that that's when you start to question somebody's motives is when they can't be honest about the numbers. They can't be honest about the inaccuracies or the mistakes. That's when you start to say, well, what what is your real play here? Do you have some sort of ulterior motive if we can't just have an honest conversation about what we know to be true as well as about what we don't know to be true? And that seems to be a good jumping off point to uh, introduce our next guest. He is Dr. Jonathan Geach. He is a practicing anesthesiologist, and he's also the author of a piece that was on Medium briefly before it wasn't. We've seen that before. Eight reasons to end the lockdowns now. Dr. Geach, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, so uh, what's your perspective on, uh, I mean, obviously I, I'm sort of uh, so indicated with the title of your piece, but the basis for uh, your uh, belief that the lockdown should start to be phased out. My first reason on my article was we have already flattened the curve. They have changed the definition of what a COVID death is here in the middle of the of the epidemic. And that's going to shift the, the curve and it's going to make it a lot harder for people to see that we're actually coming on the downside of the curve because we just, according to the stats, had the biggest death toll of any day yesterday. Well, it, it doesn't seem to bear out that way, to be honest, but I think they've it seems that they've changed the way they count the deaths. And like you said, there's the extra 3,700 cases. Now that didn't affect the yesterday's number, but changing the way you measure um, who's dying and who doesn't will instantly change the numbers. And I, and I don't think it's just New York. It seems like New Jersey was much higher than expected yesterday as well. This has not necessarily redounded to I mean, as much as the medical community is being lionized in terms of the response during this pandemic, and rightfully so. Epidemiologists and modelers perhaps are not going to come out of this uh, with the same standing in, in which they <laughs> went in based on the, the modeling that has been so radically off in terms of just about uh, every metric. Yes. What's funny is we went into this because of the modeling. You know, the original London model said 2 million people were going to die from this. And then we started following the, the Washington state model, which uh, IHME model. And it, it originally said 600,000, then 200, 100, and now it's sitting around 60,000. But we followed those models so carefully when they said we were going up. Well, now the models say we're going down, but now we have to tread lightly. You don't have a good public health system without a good economy. Uh, you don't have a safe society without an economy. Oh, by the way, just in terms of violence, other uh, other sort of second uh, level analysis uh, of uh, the consequences of the choices you make that people don't want to contemplate. They want to make this about uh, lives versus money when, as you're pointing out, it's lives versus lives that we've been pointing out for weeks. 
Uh, I wanted to ask you uh, something about uh, med school. Uh, there was a very interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal by Stanley Goldfarb, who's a former associate dean of curriculum at uh, University of Penn's School of Medicine. And uh, one of the things he suggests coming out of this in terms of silver linings, rethinking how we do things, and there's so much of that, actually. But with respect to educating the next generation of uh, doctors, uh, he uh, points out that um, American medical training as a whole doesn't uh, does not include a strong grounding in public health issues or disaster preparedness. Instead, two of the nine specific curricular requirements decreed by the body that accredits medical schools are focused on social issues in medicine. The diagnosis of common societal problems, the impacts of disparity in health care on medically underserved populations, for example. He uh, writes, physicians are highly educated, but it doesn't mean they know everything, uh, even things broadly related to the practice of medicine. And he goes on to say it's been discouraging to see doctors on news programs struggle to explain the principles of drug testing, the nature of the scientific method and the meaning, both positive and negative, of uncontrolled drug trials. He suggests that rather than uh, having doctors take courses on how to combat uh, food insecurity, they should perhaps take uh, a course or two on public health and pandemic preparedness. Well, I, I agree that um, most medical schools don't have the level of public health training that you would want. Um, it's been a few years. I went I went to medical school from 2001 to 2005, so things are probably different now than, than they were when I went. But we had... Um, we had a class in statistics and a class in epidemiology, and that was the about the end of the public health training that we had formally in in medical school. What are but you, I, I'm I do, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I, I said I I think personally it helped prepare me very well for um, this going on and understanding what's going on. But some people, you know, like these classes more than others. Some, like I, I enjoy numbers. I like math. So I really enjoyed my statistics and my epidemiology classes, and they made a lot of sense to me. But I, a lot of people just kind of struggled through it and, and said, oh, this is I'll just do it for, for the sake of doing it. Yeah, sort of like how journalists struggle through arithmetic class. Uh, Jonathan, uh, I wanted to get your reaction or, or your, um, your relaying how your colleagues in the medical community, doctors, nurses, frontline workers, administrators, and everybody in the medical community that – you're in contact with just your sense of their reaction to how this has all unfolded and uh, the discussions now we're having about reopening. Well, I see two separate worlds. There's the doctors who are dealing with the hotspots, mainly New York, a few in Detroit and in Louisiana and, and, and New Orleans, who are just exhausted and want it to end. But there's the rest of the country. And I'm, I'm from Tennessee. And our hospital is empty. Um, I think we have like, you know, just a couple of COVID patients and um, we haven't had any kind of a surge. And we've the hospitals laying off or at least furloughing all the PRN nurses. Um, the doctors are having to lay off their staffs for the for the practices. And um, all of us are taking, you know, incredible pay cuts just to try and survive this. Um, and people don't realize how dangerous it is to society to, to stop elective surgeries. Because yes, elective means it's not an emergency, but how many of these surgeries in, in pain or, or even, you know, things get worse slowly, you know? So a lot of these things are to diagnose cancer. I mean, how many colonoscopies are not being done, which could diagnose a cancer that needs to be taken out now? You know, there are all these 
elective procedures probably can be pushed off, but there's going to be real health consequences to doing this. That's another really important secondary effect. I'm glad you brought that up. Jonathan Geach, Dr. Jonathan Geach, practicing anesthesiologist, uh, coming to us uh, at least a grew up in Tennessee. Dr. Geach, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. That's the power of love. That's the power of love. First time you feel it, it might make you sad. Next time you feel it, it might make you mad. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft. And the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, Chris Cuomo had an identity crisis the other day. Yeah. Fredo. uh, Fredo Cuomo. Like a Fredo Corleone. Thinks he's meant for better things. Bigger things. Bogged down in this silliness of politics. Not interested in the money. He's smart. He can do things. Just like Fredo thought that Corleone before he took a boat ride. This was Chris Cuomo. He's got a serious XM show. If you uh, don't get enough prattling on from Chris Cuomo when he does his Harpo and Zeppo routine with his brother. You can listen to him on Sirius XM uh, engage in this sort of existentialism. I don't like what I do. Professionally, I've decided. Um, I like doing this show. I like talking to you guys. But I don't value indulging irrationality, hyperpartisanship. I don't think it's worth my time. And I don't want some jackass, loser, fat tire biker um, to be able to pull over uh, and get in my face and in my space. And talk bullshit to me. I don't want to hear it. And just like you would, right? You, you're not going to tolerate that, right? Some cat just basically pulls up in the Some driveway cat. next to yours and starts getting in your face about stuff. How, how's that going to go? How's that going to go? Right? That matters to me more than making millions of dollars a year. That matters to me more. Why? Because I've saved my money. Yeah, well, Hepcat Chris Cuomo uh, decided that it didn't matter to him more that uh, his uh, uh, soft job at CNN, where he gets those millions of dollars to do those uh, vaudeville routines with his brother, matter more. Because he walked back in those comments after uh, they got out to the public. But after they got out to the public, they couldn't be walked back before an enterprising New York Post reporter tracked down that uh, quote unquote jackass loser fat tire biker that Cuomo referred to. Chris Cuomo is such a wannabe. He's such a dandy who wants to be a tough guy, street guy, regular guy. He's such a joke, like most champagne socialists are. Uh, the uh, gentleman that he was railing against there in that clip you just heard. Uh, goes by Dave. He would only give his first name to the post. <laughs> he lives in East Hampton, where uh, apparently uh, Fredo Cuomo just bought a place. Sometimes he's scary stupid, said said Dave of Chris. Yeah. So we've noticed. 
The 65-year-old longtime resident of East Hampton said he was just out for a bike ride before Easter dinner when he spotted who he thought was Chris Cuomo on property. He says the CNN Acre bought in East Hampton last year. The property is still being developed, so it's just a steel frame for a future house that's up at the moment. David said uh, Cuomo was with his wife, another woman, and uh, three kids who were playing around on the property. So uh, he rides up. He uh, says, does Dave, that he stopped, sat on his bike well over 100 feet from the property. I just looked and said, is that Chris Cuomo? Isn't he supposed to be quarantined? You know, his um, much fanfare made of his uh, testing positive for COVID-19, of course. David said the woman who looked like Cuomo's wife came over to him and soprano style. That's my parenthetical addition said, may I help you? Dave said he replied, uh, I'm riding my bike. Then started asking why Cuomo was out there out of quarantine and not social distancing from the group. That's when Chris Cuomo wanted to beat his chest, be a tough guy. Coming within about 40 feet of Dave, Chris said, who the hell are you? I can do what I want. He just ranted, screaming, I'll find out who you are, said Dave. I said to him, again, said Dave, your brother is the coronavirus czar. Well, or governor, depending on the term of art you prefer. Your brother is the coronavirus czar, and you're not even following his rules. Unnecessary travel, said Dave. He just began to boil more. He said, this is not the end of this. (laughs) Nothing is over. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Uh, You'll deal with this later. We will meet again. Dave saying, if that's not a threat, I don't know what is. The man said he waited till Monday afternoon to call East Hampton cops to report the incident. Saying, I hate bullies. Yeah, I know we all do. But Cromo is just such, isn't he? Such fill in the blank. Maybe he's just stir crazy. Just talk it up, chalk it up to him being uh, despondent over not being able to rub shoulders in the newsroom with other titans of journalism like Don Lamone and Wolf Blitzer. These guys and gals. I mean, are you serious? This is the same thing he did at that, uh, you know. Uh, mixer for Champagne Socialist where he got into the row with the guy who referred to him as Fredo, you know, and cried, raised Italian slur, oh, blah, blah, blah. What a baby. As all these people are. Not all of them, but most, so many in the Washington press corps that just be clown themselves and their profession on a daily basis. Uh, just another example as an aside. Paula Reed, she's trying to displace Jim Acosta, apparently. So she's the one that got into the back and forth with Trump at the coronavirus task force briefing on Monday night. Then on Tuesday afternoon, when he's meeting with COVID-19 survivors, you know, those who had uh, been infected and, and had illness to varying degrees. She has to be essentially pushed out of the room as she's trying to continue excoriating the president from the night before. Paula, Paula, 
let's go, Paula, let's go, Paula, let's go. They think being making a spectacle of themselves makes them Woodward or Bernstein. No. You know what makes you a good reporter, a good journalist? Yeah, maybe somebody, some, some buddies in the press corps would like to try it on for size. Asking good questions. You press the issue, but not in a speechifying way like you're running against the person you're interviewing. Ask, the, ask good questions that are on point to provide value to your viewers or your readers. The only value they provide to their viewers and readers, and I understand based on subscriptions and viewership, you can say there's value provided to a, a small subset of the American public that is only interested in Trump hate. And they get a vicarious thrill by watching reporters uh, keep the Trump hate on for them. Okay. I mean, that's a business model. But let's just understand what the business model is. Let's just understand who Chris Cuomo, who Paula Reed, Jim Acosta, these folks that we've gone over chapter and verse. Let's understand who they are and what the business model is for the companies for whom they work. Let's understand who they're angling to serve and what they're angling to serve. This is Dan The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, Jim Freeman writing in the Wall Street Journal, his uh, always good best of the web column. The uh, lockdowns turning out to be more devastating than many expected. We've talked a lot about uh, those frontline workers and hospitality, uh, service, travel being uh, disproportionately affected, but not only affected. He uh, notes a piece from uh, colleagues at the journal. The first people to lose their jobs worked at restaurants, malls, hotels, other places that closed to contain the pandemic. Higher skill workers were seemingly going to be okay, largely because their ability to work remotely. Not how it's turning out. A second wave of job losses hitting those who thought they were safe Businesses that set up employees to work from home are laying them off as sales plummet. Uh, one software salesperson, for example, customers who paid like clockwork for 10 plus years are suddenly late. I'm burning through all the cash I have because obviously a salesperson, largely commission based, no, no sales, no payment for sales, no commission and ultimately no job. So it's a little bit more complicated than just saying frontline workers who are on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. It uh, goes back to the uh, urgency to reopen and do it so as safely as possible, minimizing risk as much as is possible, given the trade-offs. In addition to that, thinking about the decisions that were made and the predicates for those decisions, like all of the models, particularly the uh, Neil Ferguson model out of Imperial College London and the IHME model from the University of Washington. For more on that latter score, please to be joined by Bill Steigerwald, former writer, reporter, columnist for the L.A. Times and Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, also the author of books including Dodging Steinbeck. I wonder if he found Tom Joad and 30 Days a Black Man, the forgotten story that exposed the Jim Crow South. Bill, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be here, Dan. 
So um, there was a, a write-up on uh, your uh, work and conversation with uh, uh, Scott Johnson over at PowerlineBlog.com, uh, a, a piece called The Ferguson Effect, not Ferguson, Missouri, but The Neil Ferguson Effect, and just how far off Neil Ferguson, at, at this mathematical biologist, has been with respect to predicting the impact of pandemics over the last uh, two decades, not just the, the COVID-19 one. As I think I, I said to, uh, to Scott, it, or I, as I wrote in a blog, how can this guy still have a, have a job, much less be uh, um, listened to when he comes up with one of his predictions? He has a really bad track, track record, and which is easy to find. Anybody who knows how to spell Google could find out <laughs> that he blew, uh, he blew the mad cow disease uh, modeling that he did in the early 2000s, I guess, or maybe the late 1990s, I forget. And he also blew the uh, bird flu, and the numbers were, were really pretty ridiculous. Uh, how badly he missed them on, on bird uh, on bird flu for, on bird flu for example just to put the numbers to it he told the guardian that up to 200 million people could be killed by the avian flu outbreak uh just uh basing it on the 40 million who died in the 1918 spanish flu outbreak uh and noting there's six times more people on the planet now than there were back in 1918 the um bird flu's death toll from 2003 to 2020 as scott johnson notes 455 yes and uh that was easily found uh i mean i'm i'm an ex-journalist so and i'm I've, i'm a libertarian i'm i'm very skeptical of of all modelers all people with computers whether it's uh mr hansen uh at the uh you know is it noah or nasa or whatever the heck where he used to work with all his global uh warming stuff or whether it's the guys who predict the hurricanes in Florida. You know, I mean, sorry, I'm old enough to have seen about 30 or 40 years of bad modeling. Unfortunately, Ferguson, I mean, it's not like he came out of nowhere and, and said this and everybody went, wow, you're really great. You have all these computers and you're, you're a, an epidemiologist. He, he's like, you know, notorious in England for being, and yet he still uh, advises the government. And when he issued these models, I think it was around March 16, 17, 18, in England, everybody treated him like, oh, my God, gospel. Uh, Nick Kristoff at the New York Times um, did sneak a little uh, little phrase in there. He may be wrong, comma, but it's irresponsible to, uh, to ignore him. And nobody questioned him. Nobody, no journalist said, hey, uh, Dr. Ferguson, uh, we're going to call some other epidemiologist down the street here. And see what they think of your predictions. Are they over the top? Are they accurate? Are they whatever? No journalist did that. No journalist apparently even bothered to Google his past record because they would have seen what I saw in about two seconds. And that is that he has a long history of big mistakes. I want to pick up there the, the lack of the media's intellectual curiosity. Uh, more with Bill Steigerwald, former journalist and uh, author, right after this. Fixers and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Bill Steigerwald, former writer, reporter, columnist for the L.A. Times, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Pittsburgh Tribune Review, also the author of books including Dogging Steinbeck and 30 Days of Black Man, the forgotten story that exposed the Jim Crow South. Uh, Alex Berenson, also a former reporter, former reporter for the New York Times, he's been uh, setting Twitter on fire with uh, his uh, sort of one-man coverage of some of what's being reported versus other things that are being reported or what we otherwise know to be true, including on the models, including on the classifications to uh, denote somebody as having passed away from COVID-19. Uh, more, most recently, he writes, uh, tweets, uh, New York Times continues to slide further into fiction with this gem. The U.S. needs foreign doctors because hospitals are scrambling to address a shortage of medical professionals. And he posts along with that statement from a New York Times uh, story uh Stories from East Texas about hospital workers being on furlough. Stories from Montana about hospital workers being on furlough. Stories from Glen Falls Hospital in New York State about 337 employees uh, put on furlough. Uh, And you just wonder, I mean, maybe there's a circumstance in a particular hospital, in a particular locale, but that's not the way it's reported. The way it's reported is this is systemic. Everything is reported as systemic, even if it's isolated. Absolutely. You know, and that, that is a major failing of, of journalism. And I made my career whining and moaning about it. Um, it's the lack of perspective and the, the uh, that, you know, if, if a plane crashes, you'll never see a commercial airline. You'll never see the fact that, you know, for the last 15 years, what, you know, 3 million planes a year have been flying around carrying billions of people and nobody's even bumped their head you never get the perspective they just go with the headlines and then they hammer that down and this is the same thing uh according to the media and this would be electronic and i would say fox and and the liberal media do this too everyone everywhere is equally at risk from this pandemic which i guess the definition of a pandemic is that it is a you know a universal uh, global thing but it isn't. Pittsburgh, I'm sitting in a county right now, 220,000 people in Pittsburgh. Um, there has been one COVID-19 death, and it was la- it was yesterday or the day before. Mm-hmm. The city of Pittsburgh is in Allegheny County. That's 1.3 million people. They've had 24 deaths, period. Mm-hmm. This is an old, you know, Allegheny, Pittsburgh is, a, is famous for having a high uh, proportion of old people. And... Uh, and, you know, the states out west, I mean, you know, they're, they're pounding on, uh, I don't know her name uh, off the top of my head, the, the governor of uh, South Dakota. Yeah. Uh, and like she's some no, kind of no. Nazi right. uh, mad scientist for, for for balking at all this, stu- not stupidity. Obviously, people are hurting. People need help, but they don't need it everywhere. New York, New Jersey, those places obviously need everything they can get because they're they are almost being overwhelmed there in their hospitals. Well, and, and, and New York and New York City, I mean, New York City, too. Let's look at the epicenter of the largest outbreak in the country. New York City, um, almost 7000 people have uh, died. Zero in the age group of zero to 17, less than uh, less than 10 percent under the age of 65. It's just not the case that it poses the same threat to everyone. We know this. And yet, as you say, the reporting would lead you to believe otherwise. Yep. And if you if you try to say it, you are a bad person. You don't care about people dying. Uh, if you want to say, look, how about a little perspective? How about, 
you know, if you bring up what Sweden did and how they uh, mm-hmm. approached this, that's another country. They're, they're you know, they're, we're going to ban travel there if they don't shape up and make everybody sit at home and shelter in place, power in place, as I say it. But they, um, you know, let, they're, they're let, somewhere between Sweden and us is a is a reasonable, rational, rational, sensible way to address this problem. Why? why let me get your perspective as a, as a longtime journalist. Why? What, what has happened? Because, you know, it's one thing for politicians to overreact and uh, for all politicians, Republicans and Democrats, to repeat the 2.2 million number, the Imperial College London discredited study model. Donald Trump does it. Democrats do it. Because everything we did, we prevented. So when the numbers come in way low, way low, all the models, that's only because of what we, the action we took that we prevented. Politicians have every incentive to do that. But journalists are right. supposed to be a check on the politicians to say, wait a second, the, the model and the modelers need to be questioned, need to be scrutinized, need to be uh, treated with some skepticism. And then when politicians make pronouncements based on information they know to be faulty or untrue, they need to be also treated with skepticism and receive pushback. Nobody, nobody gets pushback except Trump because they don't like him, even though uh, there's there's a whole sort of chain of misinformation that they're ignoring. Yeah, it's it's kind of sad for me to see it because I've been a journalist for 40 years. I'm retired now and I'm an Uber driver mainly, which I'm out of part time Uber driver. But I do other stuff. And um, journalists have always been suckers for the voices of authority. And um, it's really weird. It's like if, if I wanted to do a story on high school students in Pittsburgh, they wouldn't trust me talking to the students, my bosses, my editors, the people, my, the people in charge of my career. And, you know, they'd say, you can't talk to kids. You can't, they're going to lie to you. I mean, they want you to talk to the, to the principal of the school. Now, he's going to give you a really good, uh, uh, honest uh, uh, appraisal of what's going on in the school, right? And it's they, uh, whether it's – there can be a, a police problem or a crime problem in a neighborhood and, and, or, or some issue like that, and they won't accept the rep- – the editors wouldn't accept the reporter's reports about what he sees. They always have to go back to, well, what do the cops say? What does the superintendent of, of school say? All this stuff. And I think that this is sort of the same thing. These experts, they're also, they, they fawn over and worship experts. They, I don't know what they think. Uh, you know, have they never seen an expert who was completely wrong? <laughs> Apparently not. They, they, they defer to experts. They defer to authority. Uh, so when someone like Ferguson comes along, you got Nick Kristoff. He's supposed to be one of the world's greatest journalists, columnist at the New York Times. He called Ferguson the the uh, gold standard of uh, disease right. modelers, right? And and no, and never thought that like maybe you know who is this guy? Where did he come from? Oh, here's a Google story. Oh, look, but, Guardian but it, wrote a story in 2005. He says he's completely out of his mind. Bill Steigerwall, former reporter, writer, columnist for the L.A. Times, Pittsburgh Post Gazette, Pittsburgh Tribune Review, also the author of Dodging, uh, excuse me, Dogging Steinbeck, Dogging Steinbeck. <laughs> And uh, 30 Days of Black Man, the forgotten story that exposed the Jim Crow South. Bill, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jim. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Please don't want to be one of these people who loses their minds, who is so full of their own moral rectitude that uh, they engage in barbaric behavior. <laughs> uh, from Florida, a man was arrested after deputies say he threatened a mass shooting at a Florida public store because not enough people were wearing masks outside. 62-year-old man arrested by the county sheriff's office. He was upset that not enough people, in his opinion, are wearing masks when they're out and about. So the response to save lives is to shoot up a grocery store. Boy, I'll tell you, the uh, irrational reaction from uh, the expert class certainly is giving license to the uh, marginally connected to reality, isn't it? How about this story out of Kentucky? A Kentucky doctor is arrested for attacking teen girls, choking one for not social distancing. You got your uh, mask enforcer and your social distancing enforcer. Hopefully these two never get together. A a, uh, doctor. Yeah, a doctor. Baptist Health Louisville confirmed that the person in question, John Rademacher, hopefully won't be a doctor for much longer, was a contract physician with the provider uh, but he's been placed on administrative leave from his practice, is not providing services currently. Well, that's probably good because I don't think his bedside manner is going to pass muster. The uh, He goes up to girls that are on a picnic blanket, at least four girls on a picnic blanket. He calls one of them an a-hole after he was asked by one of the girls not to cuss at them. Then he shoves three girls before lunging at a fourth, appearing to pin her on the ground. The girls scream. One of the girls pleads with the man to, quote, seriously, get off of her. The hell is wrong with these people? Uh, He is uh, was uh, arrested. Yeah, uh, of course. Charged with uh, four counts of assault, including first degree strangulation and harassment with physical contact. Get a grip, people. Get a grip, people. Stay inside, particularly if you are feeling like you're going to attack your fellow man. And uh, calm down. Watch No Safe Spaces. Uh, This is the political documentary put together by our friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla. And uh, just, you know, do some thought exercises to contemplate how you, when you go out, can be productive in furtherance of a free society and free speech in our free society, particularly on college campuses. Uh, If you want to stay inside and work on social media platforms, same way. And of course uh, in Hollywood too, no safe spaces incorporates a range of personas, range of opinion leaders from across the political spectrum who all share one thing in common, a belief in free speech. Uh, Hollywood doesn't want you to see this film. But you can anyway, thanks to nosafespaces.com, where it's been made available for a limited time. So take advantage of the downtime. Check out No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. 
Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danprofshow.com. There's the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. President Trump at uh, last night's task force meeting talking about uh, the payroll protection program and his desire to see another $250 billion put into it after... More than a million loans totaling north of $200 billion have already been dispersed. We want to take care of our workers. We'll worry about other things and other pet projects of Democrats and also Republicans later. But it's been a tremendously successful program. I think you see it. The banks have stepped up hundreds of thousands of loan applications approved. Money is going out. It's been a tremendous program. Really, it's been. And obviously, it was at a point where we're almost... You know, we're almost, the money will be expired, and we could use a refill for the workers. We want to be able to make sure that small businesses stay open, John, and I think that'll happen. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Bethany McLean. She is a contributing editor for Vanity Fair, and she is also uh, somebody who has uh, built a, a career out of documenting uh, economic catastrophes uh, are the co-author of the bestseller, The Smartest Guys in the Room on Enron. Uh, she wrote a book about uh, the financial bubble that burst uh, leading to the Great Recession of 2008, particularly focused on housing, Fannie and Freddie. Uh, so uh, much experience watching over the last uh, couple of decades uh, how government policies have uh, cratered the economy in various exciting ways. Bethany, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. So uh, your piece in Vanity Fair um, uh, zeroes in on on private equity. You write uh, about this being perhaps Groundhog Day, too big to fail, uh, 2020 version. And uh, you uh, suggest that private equity firms are the banks of the corona crisis. Can you explain that statement? Sure. Well, there's a lot of controversy started over the idea that private equity firms would get access to some of the disaster relief funds. And people said, well, well, well wait, these, these firms uh, have made billionaires of their executives, and they have, um, at last ele- estimate, over a trillion dollars of, of dry powder, of cash that could be invested. Why do they need part of part, part of the government, gov- government money? And my, my point was was that private equity has become so deeply woven into the very foundation of our economy, like like it or not. Um, private equity firms own a fair number of small businesses, uh, and pension funds have have staked their their future performance by investing in private equity funds, hoping for hoping for returns. And so we're all we're all leveraged to the performance of private equity. So my point was, private equity firms are are the banks of the Corona crisis. They're too big to fail, and at least if they're going to get government money, maybe we should extract from them um, some promises to do better in the future. Uh, it sounds um, sounds like you better beat Aaron Sorkin to the uh, book on the topic here. <laughs> uh, but uh, if it, here, the, on the private equity funds, don't they uh, aren't they concerned about uh, not just the two trillion dollars, but the four trillion dollars in Fed backstops with potentially more to come? That it that uh, the the government is going to crowd out private investment by buying up all of this debt and uh, and limit their I mean they may have the backstop and they may not be able to fail but they also may not be able to succeed and generate the kind of returns they're used to generating. 
Well, I don't I don't know the answer to that. We'll have to see what happens. Private equity firms, firms made fortunes after the global financial crisis. Not only did the Fed's low interest rate policy bail them out from um, bad investments they'd made before the crisis, uh, investments made at too high a price and with too much debt, but the Fed's um, lowering of interest rates helped bail them out of those those investments. And don't these these guys are smart. They'll figure yeah. out a way to use government money to continue their their march through the economy. And so I guess my point is it, that's going to happen anyway it, once once the government funds are made available. So isn't there a way to, to do it? I mean, like the government bailout of the banks or not, the banks have been – what happened subsequently made the banks a great deal safer. And so they are – as fine as they could be going into this crisis, and and let's can't can't we do the same thing at least if we're going to make this money available is try to do it in a smart way. It's 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 reminiscent of uh, back in two thousand eight the the uh, bailout of AIG to essentially save Goldman Sachs, which people like me violently opposed. It seems like you're suggesting that this sort of a, is a backdoor way that's happening again. And and here I violently oppose not just the billionaire bailouts, uh, bailouts for billionaires, but uh, unfunded pension liabilities like in right. Illinois that uh, where states and cities made their beds pre-pandemic and then getting bailed out by everybody uh, for the decisions they made. Same thing with the politicians as the, with the billionaires. Yeah, I I mean, it's it's this is this is this crisis is interesting and horrible and in that it is bringing home the proverbial chickens to roost. Right. Because a lot of these problems were, were pre-existing in our economy from underfunded pension plans to too much debt to um, to 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 our unhealthiness that has allowed this, this virus to spread with such rapidity. And so it's really highlighting all of these pre-existing flaws. It's an evil, it's an evil virus in that sense. You know, so much as we're getting a bit of a civics lesson when it comes to, say, our representative Republican form of government and federalism, seem, we, it seems like this is an opportunity to get a little bit of an economics lesson, including just exactly how our economy is comprised, how it operates. Uh, we've heard from Danny Myers, the founder of Shake Shack. Uh, he gave a great dissertation 60 Minutes a couple of weeks ago about concentric circles around his businesses. You have to understand yeah. how interconnected things are. And uh, you're offering an education here in terms of the composition of a private sector as it pertains to small business in this piece in Vanity Fair. Uh, you reference the Milken Institute report that gives you a sense of private equity's uh, out, uh, stake, or some would say outsized, but private equity's uh, presence in the American economy when it comes to smaller businesses, the, the fewer than 500 employee businesses. Yes. So it's massive. Um, they provide employment. A private equity-owned businesses employ a lot of people. They, it comprises, I think, I think the number in the piece was 5% of, of GDP. I mean, it's, it's, it's enormous. And I'm, I'm not sure that that's <laughs> – I, I think that has allowed the few to extract a lot of money at, 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 at the expense of, of the many. So I'm not necessarily a big fan of, of private equity, and I think it has been enabled over the last decade in particular by incredibly cheap debt, which – once again, has been a policy that has benefited the few and not necessarily the many. So, in no way, shape, or form am I am I smiling at this. But but we are where we are, and I'm I'm not sure. I'm really not sure how to get out of this. I don't I don't think anybody is. But just to be fair to to private equity too, I I don't want to go. You know, I want I want to try to be even handed here. I mean, there there is a role that private equity can play uh, that's productive, and that's uh, 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 getting companies to operate more efficiently. 
That, that absolutely is. And that was always the old promise of private equity, right, is that having owners who, who would allow a company to be private could allow them to focus on the long term. And by optimizing the capital structure, you could make a business function more efficiently. But I, I think I think some of that got lost in the debt bubble of, of recent years, where it, if you talk to companies that were owned by private equity, they were under every bit as much pressure as a publicly traded company to generate results now, so the private equity owner could could flip it. And cheap debt covered up a, a multitude of problems, right? And so I've, there's some interesting analysis in the piece, or at least links to it, about how little private equity owners actually did to improve businesses. So that that original idea behind private equity, which was a valid one, got really corrupted over the last decade, in my view. While we have you, and since uh, you have many areas of expertise when it comes to economic calamities, um, I I don't know if it's an expertise you sought out, but you certainly have it now uh, covering it, uh, housing and uh, the steps that uh, have been taken with Fannie and Freddie and FHA for uh, preventing, uh, uh, putting a halt on foreclosures and the other measures they've taken to provide relief in this time. Uh, We've talked a lot about the banks. We've talked about the private sector. What about the housing market now 12 years removed from the Great Recession, where the Fannie and Freddie stand in particular and the measures that are being taken, the potential impacts or concerns there? Yeah, I think there's an enormous amount of of concern there. And again, it, it... whether the steps are are sufficient, necessary, it all, I mean, something is necessary. Whether it's sufficient depends on what course we, we, we take from, 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 from here on in. Um, I just, I, there, in no circumstances is it, is it good to have people being turned out of their homes, right? So I think we have to do everything we can to keep, keep a roof over people's heads. Bethany McLean, she's a contributing editor for Vanity Fair. Uh, Check out her piece, Too Big to Fail, COVID-19 edition, which I tweeted out at Dan Proft. Bethany, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show let's talk about silver linings silver linings from the COVID 19 panic uh, pandemic and i and panic and i know that uh, it's not over uh, even with an eye towards uh, the uh, nation starting to open up state by state, phase by phase. I understand it's not over and don't want to be dismissive of those who are sick or uh, vulnerable to serious illness. But there are silver lines to take away here and we need to contemplate them in real time, talk about them so we can continue to talk about them and ultimately act upon them when we get to the other side of this and we're open for business again. Many, many silver linings rethinking our entire disposition with respect to China, with respect to global organizations that we provide the plurality of funding for, with respect to uh, the regulatory state, the administrative state, the cost and expense it takes a, a drug to, or a device to get to market per the FDA, the kind of game planning we need to do for uh, pr- pandemic preparedness, stockpiling we need to do, all of that is good. The notion that uh, 
uh, has been adopted the world over that borders matter. Boy, that certainly contrasts with the last three years of open borders from the Democrat socialists in America, doesn't it? The media exposing themselves, continuing to expose themselves for who they are and how unreliable they are. So much of the media, not all. Thinking about uh, China's influence in all aspects of our society. I mean, that's, that's what I meant when I said disposition across the board. Uh, thinking about the, the way we do K-12 through education, the way we work in certain sectors. Getting a civic lesson in federalism. Getting some Econ 101 lessons. A lot of silver linings. Uh, and uh, in many cases, we're having to relitigate old arguments that I thought we largely had the answers to. Not everybody, but a lot of buddies. And uh, one of them is uh, what we rejected in 2016 when Trump was elected. And uh, we're reminded of that now because uh, Barack Obama issued that uh, endorsement video of Joe Biden on Tuesday. Talked a little bit about earlier in the show with uh, Andrew Clavin, but just a reminder, Barack Obama discovering his good buddy Joe now that there are no other options. And that's why I'm so proud to endorse Joe Biden for president of the United States. Choosing Joe to be my vice president was one of the best decisions I ever made, and he became a close friend. And I believe Joe has all the qualities we need in a president right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we mentioned with Clavin, but I want to address again, what's the, uh, what's the angle for Barack Obama and the left as it comes to the fall? Bring the technocracy back. And the reasons are twofold. And I know he'll surround himself with good people, experts, scientists, military officials who actually know how to run the government and care about doing a good job running the government and know how to work with our allies and who will always put the American people's interests above their own. Right. And so the purpose of that statement is twofold. One, we know Joe isn't up to the job, but don't worry, we're going to put talented people around him. And two is... Those experts that you rejected when it came to running your lives and the the form it took, your rejection took the form of voting for Trump, the technocracy going to lord over you in all aspects of life, your betters, the experts, scientists, as if all quote unquote experts in a particular space or all scientists in a particular discipline agree on what policy choices should be made within their areas of expertise. Of course, that's false. But it's a lie that they want you to believe just by making appeals to experts, the omniscient class, the vanguards of you and your lives and livelihoods. They think that this is an opportunity to say Trump, to to build on the narrative the media is telling to set them up. Trump allowed the virus to spread because of an ineffectual response, because of a late response, because he's not competent, because he doesn't believe in the experts. We believe in the experts. And so here's the return to normalcy a la, you know, the 1920s. The return to normalcy is the experts are in charge again, quote unquote experts. You know what I'm saying? An important piece, two prongs, uh, a two prong basis for that technocracy rift that uh, Obama went on. And then here's the other piece of it, the uh, close. Right now, we need Americans of goodwill to unite 
in a great awakening against a politics that too often has been characterized by corruption, carelessness, self-dealing, disinformation, ignorance, and just plain meanness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but enough about uh, his eight years as president. So uh, what's uh, happening there? Purposeful. The words that he chooses, the phraseology that he uses. Remember, this is somebody who is an Alinskyite through and through. And uh, Rules for Radicals, the Alinsky Manual, dedicated to Satan <laughs> and uh, made for prevaricators, frontmen for the domestic terrorists like Bill Ayers, the frontman being Barack Obama. The Great Awakening. We need a Great Awakening. What does that phrase mean in American history? Well, it references a handful of religious revivals over the last 200 years, the Great Awakening. And so that's what you're getting implicitly from Obama. It's a call to have a revival of belief in the state. Not that it's so much needed on the left. It's a revival of politics as religion. Not that, again, that's so much needed on the left. But they couch it in transcendental terms so as to co-opt those who are afraid, many of whom have been made afraid irrationally because of the political doomsayers and their amplifiers in the D.C. press corps. That's the play. Make politics your religion and government your God. The Great Awakening. Barack Obama, Joe Biden style. The Great Awakening. Don't be fooled. Remember the decision that you made in 2016 and that you advocated for in 2016 and uh, deconstruct those who are coming back for their vengeance in 2020 and see the backdrop of a pandemic as the opportunity to exact it. You're going to have to be someone within your social circle, your circle of influence, whether you have to stay six feet away or not, who breaks this down for people. Because otherwise they're just going to listen to the mellifluous sounding, easy breezy manner of Barack Obama. Oh, it was so pleasant when he was attacking uh, Republicans as uh, pro-pollution and uh, you know, anti-working man and woman and anti-science, you know, these troglodytes, these Republicans, which he does in that video as well. Bitter partisan. An Alinskyite in sheep's clothing. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And um, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Yes, there actually was a St. Corona and um, uh, relics of 
uh, her as well as St. Victor, preserved since the 9th century at a basilica in Anzu, Italy, right in the middle of the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic uh, in northern Italy. Uh, the uh, story goes, on one respected blog, they uh, detail how uh, Corona was a 16-year-old girl, the wife of one of the Roman soldiers who was watching a uh, soldier be executed at the hands of a judge that despised Christians. She decided to help the dying man proclaim her Christianity, and she too was martyred. Um, so I don't know how uh, St. Corona is being treated. I guess she's being added to the patron list of patron saints of pandemics or illness like uh, St. Edmund. But there seems to be a movement afoot to, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, politicize St. Corona, of all things, the way that uh, people I, I were misstating what's happening to Corona beer because of the coronavirus. It's all very confusing to help us um, dispel some of the confusion. Pleased to be joined again by Michael Warren Davis, who's the editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine, contributor to the American Conservative, Spectator USA, as well as First Things. Michael Warren Davis, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's great to be back. So you've written a, a defense of uh, St. Corona. Um, you know, give us your pers- – I mean, it's it's an esoteric thing, but it's an interesting thing where people are looking, especially with Easter Sunday just passed, but people are looking for, uh, uh, you know, uh, intercession from on high. People are looking for refuge in their faith. And so the St. Corona story is getting kicked around a little bit, and you weighed in on it and wanted to get your take. When the story first came out that St. Corona, that there was such a thing, as you said, as St. Corona, no one had ever heard of her, really. She'd sort of been lost in the in the annals of the Vatican you know, library. Um, when someone sort of rediscovered her, you know, everyone was really, really excited, obviously, because, you know, here there seemed to be a saint just sort of plucked out of the obscurity of history who was by name perfectly suited to help with the, the COVID pandemic. And then, of course, the busybodies got to work and they started peeling through the history of St. Corona. And so Snopes and the quote-unquote fact-checkers uh, and some people from left-wing Catholic colleges like BC started peeling over the history of St. Corona. And as they want to do, they started saying, you know, oh, actually, there's no history of her being a patron saint of plague victims. And so it's really inappropriate for you to pray to her for intercession in the plague. And so I read this article, and I, and I, and I uh, that Snopes published, and I published one on Crisis Magazine, as you said, called uh, In Defense of St. Corona, um, because there's this funny misunderstanding, I think, at work here, that the cult of the saints in the Catholic Church is kind of like, you know, the Greek pantheon, where every saint has a, we know, we, you know, we have patron saints, St. Anthony uh, is the patron saint of finding lost things. St. Christopher is the patron saint of travelers. Right. We seem to think that it's kind of like the Greek gods, where you know, if you if you uh, if you want safe travels, you pray to Hermes because Hermes is the god of travelers, and you only pray to Hermes. And it would be ridiculous to pray to someone like Zeus for safe travel because that's just not his forte. Um, and so you sort of get this like celestial bureaucracy You're where every god yeah. or every saint, yeah, is is sort of assigned a particular role. That's just not how the cult of the saints works in the Catholic Church. The way the way that you and I know that it works is that the saints are, you know, the saints are not super, you know, they're not uh, minor deities in, in heaven. They're just, you know, they're just holy men and women who have died and gone to heaven. And uh, and they're our friends, and they and they have a, a, an active role to play 
in uh, in in our salvation and in the dispensation of God's races on earth. And so they're just there. They're just again holy men and women who want to help us. And oh, so Saint Corona, if yeah, wait, so, so do I have do I have the uh, the the history of Saint Corona right? Is that accurate in terms of what she who she was alleged to be and what she is alleged to have done and and how she was alleged to have suffered? Yeah, I, I, there are a couple of slight variations on the story. Um, from what I guess, because it's, you know, and then there are some people that claim that there's not actually a historical record that she ever existed in the first place, which, of course, I mean, they say about St. George and St. Christopher, so I don't believe it. But, um, yeah, yeah, that that seems to be the most common story from what I've read. All right. Well, when we come back with Michael Warren Davis, I want to talk about um, a wrongful prosecution. We talk about these in a lot of contexts when it's the state. Uh, depending when it's a, a person of, of color or just somebody wrongly accused. We talk about this in the context of the Me Too movement. What about in the context of the Catholic Church and uh, priests that are accused of molestation, wrongful prosecutions? We had one in my hometown of Chicago, a wrongful persecution more than a prosecution uh, back 30 years ago with Cardinal Bernadine. And it should remind us to uh, apply the same standard of burden of proof and restraint before we know all the facts when it comes to other cases like perhaps the case of Cardinal Pell. We'll pick up that case with Michael Warren Davis right away. You say you got a real solution. Well, you know. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Michael Warren Davis, editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine, contributor to the American Conservative, Spectator USA, and First Things. And, uh, Michael, before we get to the uh, case of Cardinal George Pell, I wanted to just uh, get uh, a little bit more development on this statement you made in the context of your piece on St. Corona that we were discussing. There are two kinds of people who seem to relish a national emergency, busybodies and buzzkills. Explain. Uh-huh. Well, oh, I was hoping no one would ask me to collaborate <laughs> on that. I'm not a COVID truther, but I, I'm absolutely certain that uh, even if all the regulations we put in place right now to restrict the, uh, you know, people going to work, people going out to, 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 to socialize, people in Virginia apparently now can't buy alcohol, even if all of these regulations are good, and I'm, I, I think that they are, I think they probably are, it's going to, even if they were they, they they were they were timely coming in, they're not going to be very timely going out. And I think that once all of this power to regulate is seized by the bureaucracy, uh, it's it's <laughs> they're not going to give it back very willingly. That's all I meant by that. That and the buzz kills people. If all you do is sit at home, if if what you really enjoy doing at the end of the day is going home and signing onto the internet and finding people's days to ruin and just starting nasty bickering <laughs> conversations. COVID is a dream because you're home from work. You have, you know, 12, 16 hours a day to just sit on the internet and, you know, ruin little old ladies' lives when they're talking about, you know, oh, St. Corona, pray for us. And you go, oh, actually, well, she's not a plague saint. People love that. <laughs> so um, so yeah. those, are, those are the people that really love a, a good pandemic. The, an interesting uh, uh, perspective on this uh, from Theodore Dalrymple we spoke with on the show a little while back, and he talked about fear versus the thrill of fear. And there are those that are truly whipped into a fearful frenzy by the nature of the virus, but also accentuated by the press coverage and so forth, politicians' rhetoric. 
And then there's also the people that haven't had sort of a big national calling in their life, like going off to uh, World War to defeat the Nazis or something like this. And so what they're really looking for is the thrill of fear, knowing that there's no real danger or the danger is de minimis, but they want to experience that thrill of fear. So they have to whip it into something that it's not so that it's more thrilling. It satisfies that emptiness they have sort of interesting perspective. It, it may dovetail into what you're talking about, particularly with the busybodies. Oh, totally. He's a genius. I w- yeah. I'll just agree with anything that he said. <laughs> okay. Just, just take it as right. It just, uh, unanimous can unanimous, uh, assent on that. Uh, all right. The case of, uh, the case of uh, Cardinal George Pell in Australia, this is a case that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, uh, at least uh, not the, uh, the vindication, if you will. Uh, got a lot of attention when he was charged. Uh, and of course, uh, in the age of this pandemic, you know, all of these sorts of stories have been subordinated. But I sense I sense this one would have been anyway, the outcome. Uh, just give us the backstory on Cardinal Pell and, and why you pen the piece that the witch hunt is over in American conservatives? Well, this is, uh, I actually, when I, when this story really started to develop, I was living in Australia and, uh, and I was working for a, a pretty reputable, actually a magazine that, um, Theodore Dalrymple writes a column for in, in, in Sydney. And, uh, and I remember I was, I wasn't a Catholic back then. This is 2015, 2014. And uh, and I remember the, the details of this case coming in, and it was it was obviously huge national news in Australia because it was the senior most Australian cleric probably in the history of the Catholic Church. Cardinal Pell was then the Vatican treasurer, which is one of the maybe the top five cabinet, like sort of what you'd call the Pope's cabinet. This is a big deal, and uh, and he was accused of basically child molestation. Um, that, or in the, the accusations go back to the 1990s. There was one incident allegedly that was alleged to have happened in the 1990s. And, uh, <clears throat> and I remember, again, not a Catholic, um, not particularly interested in the religion beat back then. And uh, I remember reading the details of these accusations and thinking to myself, hold on a second, this doesn't make any sense. And uh, I really can't go into the details right now because they're explicit. If you go on my right. on my article um, on the American Conservative, you can read them. Um, but the, the the point I think that needs to be made over and over again is that it's physically impossible for Cardinal Pell to have committed the acts of which he was accused. It's just it, it, the, the 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 frame of time that was required, um, the, the 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 number of circumstances that should have that had to align for it to to work out the way that it's supposed to have worked out. Um, he would have needed at least two more hands to physically do the things that he was described to be doing. It's just, it was completely impossible. And I mean, that that ridiculous claims would be made about a Catholic priest in, in, the, in, in these days, you know, at any point after the 2000, early 2000s Boston Globe uh, scandal. That the, the, the claims, not all of them by any means ridiculous, but that there would be some ridiculous and erroneous claims that's that's par for the course what was absurd is that the the police in in melbourne ever took the accusation seriously because they were absolutely ridiculous and you really have to read them to believe them the point that i make in the article and this is the only and i would love for this not to be true the only conclusion that i could draw was that you know if cardinal pell was uh you know a a, a leader of a black pentecostal church if he was uh a jewish uh, rabbi, if he was a Muslim imam, this court, this case never would have even gone to court. The police would have thrown the the, the lack, for lack of evidence. There was no 
CCTV footage. There was no DNA. There were no witnesses. There was only this testimony. And this testimony, again, was itself ridiculous. If Cardinal Pell was anything but a Catholic priest, the case would never have even gone to trial. But the fact that he was, of course, a Catholic priest and a very high-ranking Catholic bishop, um, you know, the, you know the, the, this, this ridiculous uh, testimony was all that was needed for him to be convicted by one court in Australia and then upheld by, and then the, his appeal was upheld by another court last year. It was only when, he, when it got to the, one of the highest courts in Australia last week um, that it was finally thrown out because again you can't convict someone on one testimony. It's not. It's it was it was it was unprecedented. Here's the key phrase to me from from your piece, or one of the key phrases. Thinking about the justice system, whatever its faults, we assume it has a built-in failsafe to protect minorities. Even if the odd judge harbors some ethnic or creedal animus, we expect the news media to swoop in at the first hint of foul play. We're talking about in the West in general, Australia specifically here. What happened here is that he belonged to an unpopular religious sect called the Catholic Church, and so all bets were off. And if it can happen in Australia, it certainly can happen in other countries in the West. He is Michael Warren Davis, editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine, contributor to the American Conservative, Spectator USA, and First Things. Michael Warren Davis, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. God bless. Listen, the more you'll know, this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. How's your mental health holding up? Uh, If you're uh, not uh, choking people for failing to keep social distancing strictures, then you're doing better than some, as we mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, but uh, according to a, a survey of 1,055 American survey says that asked respondents to think about how the, bra- the outbreak is affecting them, loneliness has hit a new high. A fifth of respondents said they, that uh, if the quarantining continues, it will have major implications for their mental health. That's one, one in five. Think about if it continues for two years, as Harvard recommends. Well, that'll increase exponentially. Uh, also, top concern, encouraging, concern about their loved one's health, followed by their own health. Other respondents worried about experiencing increased anxiety. And uh, a third of respondents not uh, concerned about not being able to pay bills, all legitimate concerns. 27% worried about feeling prolonged loneliness or depression. Don't worry, you get used to it. Um. And he, so here's here's an idea, too, I got for you. You know, you're 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 shut in. You got the streaming services. You watch your no safe spaces dot com. And what else? Check out uh, Joaquin Phoenix in her. Remember that from a couple of years ago? Uh, this is where he dates his uh, the operating system for his phone. Um, so check that out. So that will kill a couple of hours watching it. And then, uh, you know, give it a spin. If you're otherwise uh, a Steve Martin, Charles Grodin-esque lonely guy, like, uh, well, you know, like yours truly, uh, yeah, check that out. Uh, it's, you know, it seems to me you're, you're never alone if you've got your Amazon Prime, you've got your Netflix, you've got your uh, Hulu, you've got your nosafespaces.com. 
You got your uh, talk radio. You got your Dan Prof show. You got your Salem shows. You got your Dennis Prager's of the world and so on and so forth. Uh, you got your Alexa, maybe. You know, don't lose your mind. Keep it cool. I, it's funny because I, I really do believe, actually, in, in all seriousness, that uh, the attitude that uh, people like me took, actually, at the beginning and said so, and, and, and actually that some epidemiologists were recommending in the beginning, I don't know where these voices are now, Keep calm and carry on. Be sensible. Uh, stay informed. Make rational judgment calls. Understand risks and rewards. Understand best practices. But keep calm and carry on. And again, let me make one more pitch before we go for nosafespaces.com. It is a very good documentary. Number one political documentary of 2019. Dennis Prager, our friend, and Adam Carolla reveal how much America has become a dangerous place to speak your mind and share ideas on college campuses and Hollywood on social media platforms. It uh, gives you a sense of the, the scope of it and some things you can do to be a voice of reason in these unreasonable times in so many places. No Safe Space is now available to watch for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. Thank you again for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Please do again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.